oh, we should have named our podcast You Dumb Bitch. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Maybe that's our next one. I'm sure we could come up with a, another type of podcast for that title. Yeah. It could just be about, I was going to say murders, like people who obviously got themselves murdered. But then I was like, wait a minute, Whitley, that's not okay. Or we could just reverse that and just be like people who committed a crime in general and they were not good at it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Or like, even <laughs> like that, let's not victim blame. Let's yeah. <laughs> So like, I am Whitley Trussler, and I'm, I like <laughs> to victim blame. You dumb bitch. You got yourself killed. <laughs> or or uh, Susanna Salter. You dumb bitch. You got yourself elected. <laughs> that would be a good one for you dumb bitch. <laughs> Only she wasn't dumb. She no, did nothing. She did nothing, honestly. Right. That would be a special episode of You Dumb Bitch called You Dumb Bastards. <laughs> Welcome to Hysterical History, where we sit down, talk about our favorite stories, and of course, laugh. Your hosts are Whitley Trussler and Emily Gummery. All right, let's get this show started. But then again, I feel like bitch is like all-encompassing. Oh, yeah. I don't think I use bitch like I call Niles a bitch. I'm like, you're well, dumb Well, I think because we're women, we can reclaim that word. We yeah. can Like if a man started a podcast called You Dumb Bitch, people would be like, whoa. they be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, now. <laughs> you what dumb dick. Name, what if we doing? just name our, name our next podcast? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, now. <laughs> That's two new podcasts. You, just <laughs> you dumb bitch and whoa, whoa. Hey Secretary, now. write this shit down. <laughs> Let me tell you about the life and capture of Adolf Eichmann. Ooh, ah. Yes. From moving forward, I'm going to just refer to him as Eichmann uh, because we... Adolf, there's just, it's too many. Because his dad is also named Adolf. And then obviously, um, for those that, you know, spoiler alert, this is around like World War II. So then we also have Adolf Hitler. There's just a lot of Adolfs going on. So I, we're just going to call him Eichmann. I mean, if I hear the name Adolf, I always assume you're talking about Hitler. Yes. Um, and I think that's mainly because after Hitler, nobody wanted to name their kid Adolf anymore. Yeah, I don't know why. It's a beautiful <laughs> no idea. name. Beautiful. Um, okay, so he was born on March 19th, 1906. He's the eldest of five children. Um, his father was a bookkeeper and his mother, Maria, was a housewife. In 1913, his father moved them. Oh, let me rephrase. <clears throat> he was also born in Germany. Okay. Um, in 1913, his father moved to Austria to take a position um, with a tramway and electrical company. And their, uh, the rest of the family followed a year later. So most of his upbringing was done in Austria. Eichmann's mother passed away in 1916. And oddly enough, not long after his father remarried another woman whose name was also Maria. And she had two sons. But like, how weird is it that you remarry somebody who had the same name as your first wife? I wanted to say this happened to somebody in my family as well, but that is incorrect. It just sounds like something. 
never mind. Move Forget on. Austria. This is Licking <laughs> County. Okay. <laughs> so, um, Eichmann attended a state secondary school in Austria, which happened to be the same school Hitler attended 17 years before. Hmm, that sounds fishy. Sounds like a coinky dink if I've ever heard one. What is that school teaching? <sighs> so, um, he played the violin partic- and participated in sports and clubs. <sighs> Whitley. One of the clubs he was a part of was called the Vandervogel, which was a woodcraft and scouting group. The reason this is important is because this group had some older boys as members who were involved in various right-wing militias. So we're already starting off bad. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, this is, you know, this is definitely a straightforward path to becoming a Nazi. So I see, I I see probably that he's, he's going that route. Spoiler alert gets worse. Okay. (laughs) So he performed poorly in school. Like so bad, his father pulled him out and just said, here, go to this vocational college instead. That's a pretty big leap. Well, it got worse because he left and did not attain a a degree. (laughs) When I think about... It's it's not funny, but it is. (laughs) When I think about like a vocational school, I think about like this the trade school in my county where people go and they like cook lunch for all the kids because they want to be a chef. Yeah. Or like, like my parents went to the vocational school because it hasn't really changed since my parents were in school, but like my mom did, um, secretarial. So that's Mm -hmm. where she learned a lot of like computer skills and stuff for office. And, um, and she worked for our county. Yeah. And then my dad did construction for a good portion of my life because he learned like con like contracting skills there. My brother recently graduated there from like doing, I don't know, something with cars or whatever. Yeah. My mom actually did that. She went to vocational school and did mm-hmm. their mechanic program, which is why her email address was lady Goodrinch. <laughs> Some more stuff. I'm not going to give out my mom's email address fully. Everybody emails your mom. <laughs> Like, I hate your daughter. Or car questions. (laughs) Hey, my muffler sounding this. (laughs) She doesn't have a job, so I don't know if you want to ask her car advice. She may still know. Who knows? She might, but she definitely never worked in a car shop. So I'm just putting that out there. Don't, you can ask my mom for car advice. But maybe get a second opinion. Yes, definitely (laughs) get a second opinion. Or maybe just like not her opinion at all. (laughs) Oh, anyway, back to Adolf Eichmann. So he left without attaining a degree. So he ended up in that time, um, his father changed jobs yet again. Um, and so he actually joined his father at the Untersberg Mining Company. And he, the younger Adolf, um, was there for several months. So from 1925 to 1927, he then went to work at a radio company as a sales clerk. Which was odd to me in a little way. Like, I guess in my head, I never really thought, like, Nazis had regular (laughs) jobs. Yeah. Like, jobs (laughs) before they were Nazis. Yeah. Like, I guess I just pictured, like, when they sat around talking about their life before, it was about, like, 
kicking cats or something. Not like, oh, I used to work as a sales clerk at the radio company. Like, I don't know. It was just surprising to me. So, um, you know, Nazis, they're just like us. Uh, so <laughs> there are a couple differences, but we'll move, we'll move on with the story. It's just like how they describe celebrities. They're just like us, <laughs> but there's many differences. So anyway, okay. Now that I made myself look dumb between 1927 and early 1933, he then worked in upper Austria and Salzburg, um, <clears throat> as the district agent for, the Vacuum Oil Company AG. It did not really tell me what he actually did as the district agent. It just said he was a district agent. It sounds like he had like a career maybe sales oriented. That's jobs. what I assumed too. Um, but I didn't. I just want to have a caveat of like me personally. I could not find what he actually did. That's fair. But that's my guess. During this time is when he joined he joined the youth section of Herman Hiddle's right-wing veterans movement and then began reading newspapers published by the Nazi party. Okay. Okay, so when I said it got worse, this is it right here. He worked for the vacuum oil company until early 1933. But in 1932, April 1st, 1932, is when he joined, Eichmann joined the Austrian branch of the Nazi party. His membership in the SS was confirmed a few months later. So he just like fast tracked, okay? Yeah, that's a very fast He just went like, oh, I just want to read your newspaper and like come to the meeting and now he's a full blown SS. Like, the what? coffee must have been good at the back of that meeting. I also, <laughs> I didn't realize that there were sections of the party in Austria. Yes. Well, hold that thought. Okay. Ooh. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> was, that, was that him? Yeah. <laughs> he sounds like he's dying. <laughs> That's what he was. I was like, oh, my God, there's a cat death. No. <laughs> when he's dying, he just like <laughs> goes <laughs> like off in the corner when he's like choking on air or whatever he does. Judy. Oh man. Okay. Who? Hold on. Let me put let me put him on our lap before. Oh, he said oh. no. Let me go. <laughs> Look, he's like your Dalmatian. Look at him. He's got spots. <laughs> So I'm done with you. Oh my God, he's cute. Okay, continue. Uh, uh, okay. So the Nazis seized power of Germany in 1933. I put 1993 in my notes, but that's so wrong. Okay. <laughs> in 1933, Eichmann, so they seized power of Germany in 1933. Eichmann lost his position at the oil company due to cutbacks which from what I found was unrelated to the Nazi situation because they only got control of Germany, not Austria. And at this time, the Nazi party was actually banned in Austria. Like Austria was like, uh, no, stay over there in your lane. 
So due to this, he actually made the decision to move back to Germany. Oh, just because they banned the party. Right. Huh. Okay. Which is something I did not know before. Like, I did not realize that Austria actually made the decision to ban them. Like, a full-out ban. Yeah, that's really interesting that you would, like, could do that to a political party. Yeah, and I also find it surprising, like, okay, why did you ban them? Because if you knew it was so bad, like, why did it get, why did it get as far as it did if you were already banning them at the beginning right you know what i mean like what were the red flags yeah and like why didn't anyone else see them yeah so whitley just remember he joined the party in 1932 okay this all happened in 1933 he then did some they i feel like they had to be desperate because (laughs) He did some training and then was put in charge of eight men around a portion of the Austria border where they were helping Nazis who were fleeing Austria and they helped to smuggle propaganda back into Austria. Like, he's only been in this group for a year and some months And he already fast-tracked as part of the SS, and now he's in charge of eight men, and he's helping smuggle people out and smuggle propaganda in. Like, tell me you're desperate without telling me you're desperate. Well, I think the strength (laughs) of that kind of political fanaticism is recruiting people really quickly and making them passionate about the cause, which I guess I, I know people get upset comparing Donald Trump to Hitler. And I'm not saying that like, oh, he is exactly like Hitler because that's that's not true. And that's not fair. But the way he spreads propaganda and plays people's hatred against each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is really emotionally yeah, flaring I mean, and appealing mm-hmm. to people when they're they get passionate about it. Mm-hmm. So. Especially when you're feeding off of, like, one nugget of information that you know somebody cares passionately about. And then I think it's very easy for people to, um, like, refuse almost. Like, refuse to critically think about everything else going on. Mm -hmm. And they're just focused on that one thing. And, like, that's what is frustrating and, like, Like, this situation, like, looking back at how the Nazis rose to power, and also just, like, and not even just Trump, but just, like, stuff, just stuff in general that Mm -hmm. has happened, like, in our history as the U.S., like, you can just see that over and over again, and it's just, it's very, um, it's very sad to just see that we're not, like, learning anything. We're just repeating the same shit over and over again. After his group that he was put in charge of disbanded, because my my understanding is that they got as many, because they had different posts all along the Austrian border. It wasn't just him and his eight men. There were, like, many groups. Mm-hmm. They got all the people out that wanted to get out. And then they just disbanded that because they were like, we need you guys somewhere else doing some other stuff. He was then promoted again. <laughs> 
to an SS squad leader, which is the equivalent to a corporal. Yes, girl. That, yes. Yes. You heard that right. Wow, I wish my company promoted like that. Yeah, like if if this was how it worked in real life, I would just own Monarch now. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I would just be the CEO. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> so because he was now promoted to the squad leader, he and his team were actually quartered at the barracks that were next door to Dachau, the concentration camp. Oh. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, thinking about that, I'm sure they had some hand to play in those preparations there. Oh. Just hold your horses. Okay. Oh, no. no. Okay. Yes. It gets worse. Um, it gets worse. So, in 1934, which is then how we get to his capture, but we'll just go along the timeline. So, in 1934... He requested a transfer to the SD, uh, which is another subsection of the Nazi party, mm-hmm. and was assigned to the sub-office on Freemasons, which I did not hear anything about this, but let me tell you what it is. So the sub-office on Freemasons is where he organized the seizing of ritual objects for a proposed museum which we all know nazis just took shit from every country and hid it somewhere right some of the stuff they in case you didn't know listeners some of the stuff they recovered but a lot of stuff like a lot like a lot all caps was never recovered to this day okay like priceless artifacts this is a sidebar but related there's that show on Amazon Prime about the Nazi hunters. Have you watched that? Um, I've watched like a million and one Nazi things. Well, it's, I swear I have like a good personality. Well, but um, it's based I don't on know a real group of Nazi hunters in the 70s in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how much of it is dramatized versus like real. Real. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is based on a true group of people. And there's an episode where they find this giant warehouse of stuff, like priceless artifacts, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. stolen mm-hmm. during the Nazi reign in mm-hmm. Germany. So I, that was a sidebar. It's a really interesting yeah, show. Like but. they, I know this is not the story I'm telling, but if this is something that interests you, I highly recommend like reading and watching stuff on this because it's so crazy. They would dig multiple tunnels underground like a network of tunnels and hide stuff in certain portions of the tunnel so then and then they would like dynamite the entrance or whatever so then you would definitely not be able to find it or they would have multiple um what are those things uh like not fallout shelters, but like they would go part of their network underground, but it's not the tunnels, Mm -hmm. but they would have different things underground where they would also hide things or they would hide like, uh, notes and like, like kind of like hieroglyphics, almost like just drawings on the wall that would tell other Nazis, like how to find the stuff if they needed it. Like, it's crazy. It's insane. And so much stuff has still not been recovered. And it's 2021. This happened in like the 30s, 40s. We still haven't found it. 
That's why I'm so captivated by this war. I've always been interested in learning mm-hmm. about World War II and the Nazi party. Yeah. And it's not because, like, initially when you learn about just the sheer number of people who were murdered mm-hmm. and, like, how out of hand it got, but, like, because yeah. of that kind of stuff, too, you know, there's so much going on in this conflict and it's so complex. But, anyways, yeah. I, I know I. No, it's okay. Like it's you could talk about it forever. Yeah, and like that's always been. I agree. Like that's always been my fascination too. Is like at first it's like you can't. You have to like just keep thinking about it because you like I can't even imagine the sheer amount of madness Mm -hmm. that has to be going through someone and a whole group of people to be able to orchestrate something like this. And then you learn all this secret shit about them taking priceless artifacts and hiding it and the fact they still can't find them and it's crazy um oh yes how we got on this topic (laughs) so um he was assigned to the sub office on freemasons where he organized uh organized the seizing of ritual objects for this quote-unquote proposed museum and he also worked to categorize Known Freemasons, like actual people that were known uh, to be Freemasons, and other Masonic groups in Germany. They literally just wanted to know who was involved. Which, shady. Like, we all know why they wanted to know. That's another thing I'd be interested in learning about. Is cause Anytime I hear Freemasons, I'm like, conspiracy. <laughs> but I always just, because of the National Treasure movies, thought it was like a uniquely... United States thing, but apparently it, it's not. I am very wrong. Yeah, I was too, because that was another reason why that I threw that fact in there. Mm-hmm. Um, one, because it's important to know, like, he's just nuts about yeah. just a lot of stuff. But I also thought Freemasons were just in the U.S., apparent, and that's apparently incorrect. Yeah, so, Nick Cage really shaped my worldview on Freemasons. I don't even think it's like Nick Cage. Like, I'm just learning, like, going through this podcast is really going to make me understand, like, I like learning about stuff, but just how much stuff I really don't know. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, okay. So that was in like early-ish 1934. Later in 1934, he was invited. This is where it goes downhill even more. Like you thought we were at the bottom. We're n- not even close. So in 1934, he was then invited to join the Jewish department. Like, that's what it was called, the Jewish department, by Leopold von Middelstein. Where he researched the goings-on in nearby communities, Jewish organizations, etc. Like, what are the Jews up to, is what they want to know. What do they know? What do they not know? What are they doing? How does it work? I just feel the fact that they didn't make this a more covert name than Jewish department is fascinating, but go on. I think just because it was, I, I, me personally, I think at the beginning, like, yes, Hitler blamed the Jews from the jump. I just don't think that he was, I don't think he hit that crazy point yet at the very beginning. And I don't really And I could be wrong as we go and we find more stories to cover and stuff. But I really personally do not think that in 
like 1932 to 1935-ish, like 34-ish. Those like couple years, I don't really think he was thinking we have to eradicate the Jewish population. I just think he was like, we need to like gather them and get them out of Germany. I mean, like, I don't really, I honestly do not think his, on his mind was we have to kill every single Jewish person. And, and that may be me being ignorant. Like I said, as we go, I could be like, I retract everything I said in that episode, (laughs) but me right now with the knowledge I have, that is what I think. Yeah. And I think it's also, I mean, putting people around one point of hatred Mm -hmm. and scapegoating a whole group of people is right unfortunately a great way to gain followership among Mm -hmm. your country folk and even Eleanor Roosevelt I found when I was researching this story she made a statement about how she didn't like Jewish people in the 1930s yeah so think about how pervasive this ideology is that even people not in Germany are thinking this yeah so they don't they don't see it as a problem Mm -mm. but no so that's another reason why I don't think the Jewish department like was named anything more co- covertly because I mm-hmm. don't really think that was the initial initial intent. That's fair. I think it was more just to like research like what was going on in their community, what kind of organizations they had going on. Kind of like kind of like one of those things where you like learn about your em- enemy to keep them like just just close enough to where you can like keep an eye on them. I think that's initially what this was for. That makes sense. Um but, you know, in 1935, he found time to get married. He's a busy guy. Yeah, he found time in his busy, busy life <laughs> to get married. And he and his wife did eventually have four sons. Um, oh, so they were really getting busy. Yes. <laughs> um, one of them was not born, at least one of them was not born until after all of, like, World War II. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah. But we'll get there. So, (laughs) Whitley, between 1934 and 1939, so he was promoted again. (laughs) He's really doing well for himself. I really, I just think he was, they're desperate. (laughs) They're like, you seem like you really believe in us. Here's a job. I mean, they built the party really quickly and that's, that's how. Yeah. So in between 1934 and 1939, during this promotion, He was given the duty of organizing. Here's where we got bad. Like, this is why I said 34. So given, he was given the duty of organizing the deportation of 70 to 80,000 Jews. But I would like to prefit, like, to just like asterisk, like deportation. Mm -hmm. Like right now they are literally just deporting people. And so in 1939... He was, I don't know if it was like a total promotion again, but he was given the title of quote unquote special expert to Reinhard Heydrich and was put in charge of deporting Jews from Poland because around this time is when they got control of Poland. Mm -hmm. So within this time, um, like I said, like, like I kind of hinted to before, they were just trying to get Jews out of the countries that they occupied. So they actually were like he, Heydrich and a couple of other people. Um, 
And in no way am I trying to give them an out. I'm just telling you the facts. So they were going to other countries in the surrounding area and trying to work out deals with their government on like how many Jews they could take. Hmm. So like, it's not the best, (laughs) but it's not as bad as it gets. (laughs) So yeah, I would rather hear like, Oh, 6 million Jewish people were deported than like eradicated. Yes. Um, and that's why I think, again, not giving them an out, but that's why I think like his craziness was not at the all time high at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, something happened there that I don't think any of us will ever know. Like what, what flicked in his head to like, yeah. to go from zero to a thousand in like a year. So within just a few days of him getting this title of special expert, he had concocted a plan to deport another 600,000 Jews. So between 1934 and 1939, he deported 70 to 80,000. Right. He then got a new title in 1939 after this deportation of that many Jews. And within a few days of getting that title, he said, here's the plan. We're going to get rid of 600,000 more. So just to put this in context (laughs) for listeners, he went from managing eight people in a platoon. Yep. To then deporting 70 to 80,000 to then deporting 600,000. Yes. Within the span of less than Uh, 10 years. Yeah. Five. Five years. Five. He deported that many people in five. And he was given that job in 33, so six years. Yikes. In six years, he made that big of a transition from where he started to deporting. That is wild. Yeah. A lot, like... And it kind of puts into perspective, like you could look at the years of, you know, their reign for the third Reich. And you can look at the years of like how long the actual like war was, but it's so crazy when you talk about like individual people like this, because it makes you really put into perspective, like how quickly shit happened. Like that was all that was six years. Yeah. That's crazy. Crazy. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So, (sighs) Whitley. The size. So, in August, on August 15th, 1940, so a year later, Mm -hmm. after we deport all these people, and we come up with a plan to deport more, um, Eichmann released a memo calling for the resettlement to Madagascar of a million Jews per year for four years. Now, let me put this a little bit into perspective. So during this time, they were fighting Britain, which I did not realize, I guess, like. Okay, Britain was fighting this war alone for. Yes, correct. But I did not realize how in depth. I mean, I've taken a bunch of like World War II classes Mm -hmm. and read a lot. But like, again, when you're focusing on a single person, it really puts into perspective, like, like drives home the point. And to me, it drove home the point of like how much Britain was doing yes, by themselves. So I don't know if you're familiar, but at the time of all of this, 
Britain basically controlled the Atlantic. Like, the Atlantic. Not like a portion. Like, yeah. the Atlantic. So, unfortunately for them, fortunately for us, uh, Germany failed to defeat Britain. Mm -hmm. And so, because of that, Germany, therefore, did not have any claim to Madagascar because... Spoiler alert, Madagascar is in the Atlantic. So that then kind of, he, like they, that stalled the plan and they just couldn't do it. They could not put people in Madagascar because they had no right to Madagascar now. Mm -hmm. um, which kind of also makes you think like how die hard of the situation they were because that he just automatically assumed they would win. And get Madagascar. And so here here he is. It's like, here's here's the plan. In four years, we are getting... We're going to deport four, uh, one million Jews per year. In essence, getting rid of four million Jews and just putting them on Madagascar. Which yeah. I don't even know if Madagascar... Listen, I, I don't know a lot about geography. I'm terrible at directions and like square footage and acreage and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so like I personally, like could someone tell me, maybe, you know, could Madagascar even hold that many people? I mean, I don't know the answer <laughs> to that question, but that was a hundred percent the thought I had when you said they wanted to do essentially 4 million people on Madagascar. I was like, wait a minute. Is that big enough? Yeah. And you're taking people out of their environment. I mean, Germany, let, let's be honest, Europe, it's for the most part in most areas, cold, clammy. They do have harsh winters in most places. Mm -hmm. Air's going to slap them on Madagascar, which to my <laughs> understanding is a warm environment all the time. I mean, oh, they yeah. probably have rain and stuff, but they definitely don't have snow and that kind of stuff. So I don't know. So anyway, obviously he's very, very, very involved in trying to find new and innovative ways to rid the German Empire of Jewish individuals. So I guess my understanding, and I don't mean I guess, like my understanding from these notes, is the actual eradication of the Jews. At some point, we, were, we started talking about eradication. And this was supposed to happen after the war was over and Germany was victorious. So they actually had no set plan to do this until they won whatever they won. I don't know what their end game was. Like, I don't think anyone really knows how many countries they were trying to take over or whatever. World domination. Well, <laughs> long I don't term, know I think that was probably the goal. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> if it started there, but I'm sure after they quickly mowed through most of the countries in Western Europe, they were like, wait a minute, guys, we can do this. Yeah, like, <laughs> we pro like when we started this podcast, <laughs> like, we could probably do we this. We could definitely do this. Yeah, so, um, however, those damn Soviets, <laughs> Germany was having a lot of issues on the Eastern Front with them. And Japan effed up real bad, and we got involved. Mm -hmm. So then Hitler panicked, as one does, when your plan does not come to fruition. And then requested that Jews be eradicated immediately. So now everybody's scrambling, because they're like, I thought we had more time. And now they have to come up with a whole bunch of plans. So in 1942, Eichmann joined Heydrich again. 
and other high-level Nazis at the Wannsee Conference. They had a conference where they had bagels and shit, I'm sure. Where one does, yes. And they discussed and put together a plan for the final solution. Mm. For those of you who are not familiar, the final solution is how the Nazis were going to eradicate all the Jews in their empire. Um, and not just Jews. They also did gypsies. Um, basically, anybody they didn't like, they were gone. Um, and this was at the request of Hitler. So he said, figure it out. And they said, let's have a conference. <laughs> and then this is where we are. So Eichmann oversaw the stenographer who took the notes. He was the liaison between Heydrich and the other department heads involved. Under his supervision... Large-scale deportation started pretty immediately to the extermination camps. So after the Nazis took over Hungary, they immediately started rounding up Hungarian Jews and shipping them to Auschwitz. Also, for those that you don't know, Auschwitz was probably like one of, if not the worst, concentration extermination camp that the Nazis had. They It was so bad that they even had an Auschwitz too because they just were turning out people all the time the commandant of the camp we'll get here but during the nuremberg trials said that he was instructed that he would receive all operational instructions related to the final solution from eichmann directly oh so he played a pretty direct hand oh yeah girl <laughs> oh yeah Due to a turn in the war and Germany starting to lose. Spoiler alert. If you didn't know, Germany they lost. lost. <laughs> um, deportations were actually halted to the camp. So like all camps, they were like, we're losing. Stop sending people. Which surprised me because me, I'd be like, we're losing. Like we need to get rid of all this evidence and all these people who know what's going on. Like not saying anyone should be killed. Let me preface. But like in my head, that's what should, it just surprises me. Yeah. So this decision angered Eichmann. He was pissed. He's like, again, why are we halting? So he threw a tantrum basically and requested a reassignment. Whitley, do you want to know what he was then asked to do? Uh, it's surprising, kind of. Not is it a, worse or better? I don't know. It has know. to be better. Okay, well, maybe not. So, it it is a little bit better, and then it gets worse. <laughs> so Okay, so it's a little gray area. <laughs> yeah, so he was asked to work on rescuing German citizens from the path of the oncoming Red Army on the Eastern Front. The only reason I say this is kind of a good thing is because it was mostly the people that were in like the hospitals. So like your, I don't know if they have Red Cross in Germany, but the equivalent to Red Cross, like mm -hmm. your nurses and your doctors and the um, military individuals that are in the hospital who I would like to preface may or may not have known why they were fighting. Not every military personnel knows why they're fighting a war. They just get called and they show up. So I just want to preface, we don't know why they were there, but he was in charge of rescuing them so they don't get killed by the Red Army. But he was then um, in charge of arranging for tens of thousands of Jews to march from Budapest to Hungary in appalling conditions, like march outside. Mm -hmm. 
I had to look it up because they gave it to me in kilometers and I'm a dumb American and I don't know what that means. So it's a distance of 130.5 miles that they marched. That is a pretty far distance. I hate doing more than like five miles of walking. And I think most people do, unless you're like a runner or an avid jogger, walker, runner person. And this happened in winter conditions, right? Is this... Um, if you don't know, that's fine. We can... It just says 1942. I want to say, if I'm remembering correctly, the reason that the Eastern Front was turning negatively is because it hit winter and Russian winters are terrible. Right, yeah. And that's how they started to lose. So I would say it's sufficient to guess that yes okay and i'm saying that because i looked at my next bullet point and it talks about december so yes okay (laughs) perfect okay so let's set the scene december 24th 1944 (laughs) germany loses okay germany has lost germany is done hitler apparently unless you're a conspiracy theorist committed suicide and everybody fled because now they're panicked or they took uh cyanide tablets okay Mm -hmm. people are panicked so december 24th 1944 eichmann fled budapest barely whitley barely missing the soviets okay and their encirclement of the capital like they just like encircled the capital and were like nobody's coming in nobody's going out but he barely like got out so he he can't mind his business okay (laughs) he he returned to berlin where he arranged for important records to be burned so that's why he's part of the reason why we don't know a lot of stuff logical and then eichmann and his family were living in relative safety in austria when the war ended in europe on may 8th 1945 that's like the official end Mm mm-hmm So let's talk about after the war and his interesting capture. So the U.S. did capture Eichmann after the war. Okay. We did a good deed, but then we effed up like normal. And he had forged paperwork that identified him as Otto Eckman. (laughs) When people started to finally like put two and two together of who he actually was he ended up escaping. Tell me why we suck. Why are we so terrible? <laughs> so he obtained new papers as Otto Henninger and jumped around from place to place. So <laughs> it got worse for him, though, because as we discussed, uh, the former commandant of Auschwitz and many others that were caught gave such damning evidence about him and his involvement during the Nuremberg trials in 1946 that they then like, if he was high and now he's like extra high on their list Mm -hmm. to find. And so for those again, who don't know or not familiar, the Nuremberg trials were headed, uh, held in Israel and it was basically the Israeli um, government who just like put on trial, all of the individuals involved in the final solution in the Nazi party um, where they convicted like a ton of people on war crimes. So, 
1948, Eichmann received a landing permit from, of all places, Argentina. <laughs> and false identification. And he went there as Ricardo Clement. Oh, he really switched up his uh, code name. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> except this MFR has <laughs> a German accent, <laughs> but he's going as Ricardo Clement. <laughs> so dumb. So he arrived in Buenos Aires on July 14th, 1950, and his family moved with him in 1952. Um, he had like some odd jobs, but eventually... He started, and somehow this guy keeps getting promoted, and I don't know how. He rose to department head of a Mercedes-Benz. Okay, wouldn't you want to be keeping a low-profile, Ricardo? Listen. Not being a department head? They also then built a house and moved into it during 1960. So, in 10 years, he... Had odd jobs, but rose to a department head of Mercedes-Benz and built a house. So he's doing all right. Yeah. For being a war criminal on the run. Disgustingly, he's living his best life. And I'm appalled at Argentina. <laughs> okay? So, separate time, I mean, same timeline, but separate area. So this is when Mossad was formed. Uh, they were formed in 1949. If you don't know what they are, they're basically the C the CIA of Israel. And they were created at first to assist with the location and capture of Nazi war criminals. Basically, there were a lot of things going on, I'm sure everyone could assume. Um, because, like, what the hell just happened? Who has what information? What information is accurate? And what's a, a lie? Um, many notes were being passed to the group stating Eichmann had actually been seen in Argentina. They had, this is just cracks me up. They had no recent photos of him though, but his brother, <laughs> I feel bad because his name is Otto. Okay. Oh, <laughs> and they actually have had their whole life, like a very like similar resemblance to each other. Mm-hmm. So they took pictures of him so they would kind of have an idea of what this guy looks like. <laughs> I mean, do what you got to do, I guess. But <laughs> so back to Argentina. Okay. Lothar Herman was a half Jewish German who emigrated to Argentina in 1938 before things got bad. His daughter had begun dating a man. Okay, now remember, I told you, he had like four kids, one of which was actually born in Buenos Aires. So at the time when they moved, there were only three of them. His kids did not give an F, okay, that they should be keeping it under the radar. Obviously. So his daughter had begun dating a man named Klaus Eichmann. Oh, my gosh. Wait a minute. In 1956. Who had been going around and boasting of his father's Nazi exploits. Dude, it be your... It, listen, it be your own kids sometimes. Like, <laughs> it just... You can't trust anybody, not even your own kids. Okay, but also the fact that 
his name is so German and it's Eichmann, the last name. He wasn't supposed to be using that name. They, oh, all, they had all had fake names. Fake okay. names because he was there as Ricardo Clement. But what happened was his kids said, nah, I'm using my name. And then just used their names. Like, I know we shouldn't feel bad <laughs> because this is how we get to the capture. But I just want to know, like, how dumb do you have to be to be like, we're on the run, but let me use my name, my real name, my God-given name. Okay, well. And to just run your mouth to everybody about your dad being a Nazi. Yeah, not good ideas. No. If my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather or whatever was a Nazi, I still wouldn't talk about it today. I'd be like, I don't know what he did. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I'd also just be so embarrassed. Yes. So, because obviously his daughter is like, Dad, like, I have a boyfriend, whatever, whatever. Herman's like, WTF? <laughs> so he alerts German authorities. The person he alerted didn't fully trust the German uh, German government, which I think is fair. Mm -hmm. So what happened was Herman was told his daughter, like, uh, let me tell you a story <laughs> and was like telling, told her about Eichmann and stuff. So he enlists his daughter's help to find out more information. And so the next time she went to her boyfriend's house, she knocked on the door, like, and Eichmann opened the door. He, these people are so stupid. <laughs> he claimed to be Klaus's uncle, which is how they were then explaining the name difference. Okay. Except Whitley, again, it'd be your own kids. Klaus arrived home and addressed him as father. <laughs> like, <laughs> how freaking dumb are you? <laughs> handle it so with this information herman talked to his person in the like in the in germany mm -hmm. and finally in 1957 all that information was passed from that person in germany to Mossad, where operatives were sent to argentina to gather intel however they could not come with any definitive proof so I do want to preface or like add Mossad paid Herman for his information, which I thought was nice. And before the Herman situation, apparently there was a journalist who had interviewed Eichmann about his uh, immigration to Argentina and how crazy it was to finally leave Germany and what Germany was like during the Nazi reign and all kinds of stuff and how he survived as a private citizen. Bullshit. Okay. <laughs> so the journalist found out, um, and his name wasn't revealed in any type of press until 2012, but he did give Mossad a recent photo because he took a photo to go with a story and the address of his house. Oh, wow. So an undercover team was able to confirm the identity, but they had to figure out how to get Eichmann out of Argentina. You want to know why? Because they don't extradite anybody. 
So if you want to commit a crime, then go to Argentina. Unless information has changed. But as of the 60s, they didn't extradite anybody. Basically, you would ask and they would go, "Mm, no. (laughs) So the Israeli prime minister made the decision that a team would be dispatched to get Eichmann, kidnap, okay? Oh. And bring him back to Israel. So he just said, kidnap, but I'm not going to put it in documentation. We're kidnapping him. I thought you were going to like tell me about some elaborate scheme next to trick him into leaving. No, they just went and but kidnapped him. But they just did him. straight up kidnap. Yes. Okay. So on May 11th, hollow, that's my birthday, uh, 1960, Eichmann was captured near his home. They almost missed him, though, because they had been watching him for like a month. And every day he would get off the same bus at the same stop. That day, he didn't. But they found him, like, walking by. He had gotten off a different bus stop. So they just, like, grabbed him. And he was taken to a Mossad safe house and they were where they were able to confirm his identity. They were like, you're Adolf Eichmann. And he was like, no, I'm Roberto Clement. And they're like, no, you're Adolf Eichmann. And then he finally was like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> like, that's literally what happened. So on May 20th, So around nine days later, a doctor came around midnight and sedated him. And they dressed him up like a flight attendant and smuggled him on a flight to Israel from Argentina. Nobody thought that was suspicious. (laughs) What? No, it was like, what's that thing? uh, Night at Bernie's or whatever. You know what I'm talking about? No, I don't. You don't know the movie. It may not be the name of the movie. But there's a there's a movie where this guy dies. And they throw like a house party at his house. And they string him up and put sunglasses on and make it just seem like he's alive, but he's not. Weekend at Bernie's. That's what it is. Weekend at Bernie's. You have to watch it. It's I don't freaking know, crazy. I don't know Weekend at Bernie's. I only know Breakfast at Tiffany's. I only know Breakfast Club. <laughs> No, but you need to watch Weekend at Bernie's. It's crazy. But that's what they did here. They literally just like walked him on and they're like, oh, he's hungover or whatever they said. So he was smuggled out of Argentina and arrived in Israel on May 22nd, where the government was able to announce his capture. I do want to preface that after Argentina found out what happened, they basically tried to like sue Israel sort of and... First, Israel was like, no, you're hiding a war criminal. And they were like, but that's, you can't kidnap our (laughs) citizens. And so it went back and forth. Finally, Israel was told they had to like pay Argentina money because they went against like their rules. And and, so they um, bought a person kind of, except they didn't end up paying I think oh. I think there was a, probably a lot of bad press, as you could assume, and Argentina and Israel just shook hands, made a joint statement, and then they went about their way. Because I cannot foresee that going well for Argentina at the time. No. Like, I don't you're think... basically fighting to hide a war criminal. Well, right. I don't think that would look good, really, for either party involved. No. At this time. But this is exactly why so many of the Nazis went to Argentina. Because they did not 
extradite. He was given a trial, obviously, because we have to make things legit. Um, and it started in April 1961. And it adjourned on August 14th. So April to August. The verdict wasn't read until December 12th. Because they convicted him, but they had to figure out, like, what they actually were going to do with him. Right. So let me tell you all the things that happened. He was convicted on 15 counts of crimes against humanity, war crimes, crimes against the Jewish people, and membership in a criminal organization. With membership in a criminal organization, he got three of those because he was a part of the Gestapo the SD, and SS. Judges did not find him guilty of personally killing anyone and not guilty of overseeing and controlling the activities of the Einsatzgruppen, which was basically the SS paramilitary death units. So he did not do anything with that. He was deemed responsible for the dreadful conditions on board the deportation trains and for obtaining Jews to fill those trains. He was convicted for crimes against Poles, Slovenes, and Gypsies. And when considering the sentence, the judges concluded that Eichmann had not merely been following orders, but believed in the Nazi cause and had been a key perpetrator of the genocide. So, because of all that, on December 15, 1961, he was sentenced to death by hanging. Of course, as one does in a criminal trial, he and his team went through the appeal process and even had the audacity to reach out to the Israeli president and ask for clemency. I was like, that's a stretch. That's a bold ask. Yes. Obviously, everybody said no. And they upheld his sentence. So, that was December 15, 1961. On May 31st, because it took that long to go through... Um, well, December 15, 1961 was when he got his sentence. So, it took that long to go through the appeals process and everything. On May 31st, at 8 p.m., that's important, he was informed of the decision. And then... A few hours later was hanged. So they didn't even give him like a day <laughs> to so think about it. So he just had it. no idea. He just, they said, you're getting killed. And then a few hours later, they're like, all right, come on, man. Gallows or not gallows, but that's wild. Yeah. The last thing I'm going to leave us all with is his last words. So Eichmann was reported to say, quote, long live Germany. Long live Argentina. Long live Austria. These are the three countries with which I have been most connected, and I will not forget. I greet my wife, my family, and my friends. I am ready. We'll meet again soon, as is the fate of all men. I die believing in God.